welcome. My name is Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers whose shared love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. Today on To Die For, we are joined with the mother of the uterus horror subgenre herself, writer and horror critic Molly Henry, who will be chatting with us about the uterus horror subgenre, the monstrous feminine, women in horror, and two of our favorite 70s horror films, Carrie from 1976 and The Brood from 1979. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump in. Yeah, well, um, I am a film critic and freelance writers uh, focusing on horror genre because I feel like there isn't necessarily enough representation writing about it, especially women. Um, I've been writing since 2015, I think. (laughs) The the years go by so quickly, I don't even know anymore. (laughs) And uh, I've been writing specifically about uterus horror. I started the column, oh my God, it was just last year. It's, it's only been about a yes. year and a half since I started. It's crazy. It feels like I've been writing about it forever. <laughs> yeah. You're like, it's my world now. <laughs> yes. It's pretty much all I talk about it. People are probably sick of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> so what got you into horror? Uh, honestly, unintentionally, my sister. Oh. <laughs> she, she forced me to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street when I was four while she was babysitting me. Um, she doesn't even like horror so I don't know I her and a friend forced me to watch it so I don't know why she picked that um and it both traumatized me and made me fall in love with the genre uh much to my parents chagrin so Mm -hmm. uh, that's basically my origin and then I I just I, I bought and rented as much as I could growing up and I just have always had a deep love of it I I love being scared but then I also love the the way that horror can be a really great metaphor for different things um Mm -hmm. like in uterus horror yes yes exactly (laughs) well that's exactly what we want to ask you about and pick your brain about because as much as I love the subgenre I couldn't think of anyone more qualified to ask more about it absolutely um (laughs) so for the folks that are new to the subgenre do you want to tell us a little bit about what uterus horror is yeah so uterus horror a really simplified way of explaining it is that it's essentially coming of age stories focused on young women, Mm -hmm. whether that be them experience puberty for the first time or coming into their sexuality, um, usually in that like teenage to early 20 years range. And it's, I I chose the name uterus horror, even though it might be off-putting for a lot of people, because I wanted to emphasize the focus on women for this. Um, and also side note, you don't necessarily have to have been born with a uterus to experience uterus horror. I always like to emphasize that because I know some people might take issue with it, but so for example, um, Angela from sleepaway camp, Mm -hmm. that's uterus horror coming of age stories historically have focused on young men. So I really wanted to emphasize with this subgenre that this is very specific situations with young women that. Sure, there might be some overlap, but for the most part, there are things that only young women would experience, um, and it's truly horrifying for the yeah. most part. Yeah, yeah, that's so fascinating too. That it's specifically for coming of age body horror for yeah. generally the young woman, and it's such a unique experience, and it's one that I do think deserves its own subgenre. And would you say this kind of differs from? 
like a general like womb horror because there's a lot of like sister subgenres kind of that relate to this but this is a little more zoned in yes definitely i they're very similar but obviously womb horror kind of is more i mean not necessarily always older but generally mm-hmm. it's for it's more for the horror of what your body what is going to come out of your body more so than your body itself i think mm-hmm. is kind of a good way to describe it um and there's there's obviously overlap. Like there there's a film called The Wildling that is both. It, mm, it has right. the coming of age side of it, but then there's also the pregnancy side of it in that film too. So it encompasses both those things. Um, so there definitely is quite a bit of overlap. But definitely, I I would say when by the time we get to more of womb horror, that's they've already know who they are as a person. Mm-hmm. And with uterus horror, it's more of them discovering who they are. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. So that's kind of like womb horror probably relates more to like maternal horror Mm -hmm. and then uterus horror is more focused on like coming of age. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So both of the films that we're talking about today, um, both were made in the 1970s. And I was curious about, you know, what you think about the era of Roe v. Wade, the 70s, and if you think that it plays a role in sort of the birth of uterus horror or if that subgenre um, and maybe womb horror specifically as well, did the era bring something to the genre that maybe previously um, the genre did not have? I'm curious kind of what the, where you found, like, where does it start? And I'm curious if it starts in the 70s, in your opinion. Yeah, honestly, I think it definitely did start in the 70s. And I, I believe Roe v. Wade probably had a heavy hand in that because it brought women's reproductive rights and women's bodies more to the forefront, more so than maybe they were in previous generations. I mean, realistically, I could go back and look at older films and I could be like, yes, this is a uterus horror film. But I don't think that was necessarily the intention. Like, for example, Cat People. I think mm-hmm. is a film that could definitely be considered uterus horror, um, but in a much more subtle way, it wasn't the forefront of the plot. Whereas in the seventies, when we start, when we had Carrie, I, I honestly think Carrie is probably the first true uterus horror film and is where the, the subgenre got its start, um, which is kind of wild to think since it was written and directed by men (laughs) but uh it's I mean I'm glad that it was a start and I I love Carrie but it I think that because women's reproductive rights were in the media so much like from the the press side of things that it gave it more of an opportunity to be seen on the fiction side as well and in film where in the past they they those were very touchy subjects that no one wanted to talk about the fact that in in Carrie you see her bleeding in the opening, that's something that never would have been done before that because it's almost like the equivalent of the first time the toilet flushed in Psycho. It's so taboo to show that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, of course, I think I think that era made women's stories more important and more of a focus. I mean, they were always important to us, but <laughs> they made right, right. other people care about it more as well. How do you think that the subgenre has changed over time? And, and what would you say sociopolitically has an impact on these horror films? And Because, I mean, I even think about like, this year was the I was the first time I remember seeing a pad commercial that used red liquid versus a blue liquid. Mm. And it's 2021 and we finally got that. So from Carrie in 74 
to now, how do you think the genre has evolved? You know, it's really interesting because as I've been writing about it, there are, again, kind of like with Cat People, there are films between Carrie and up to this point that I would put into that subgenre. But again, I don't think it was necessarily the filmmaker's intention. Um, I feel like it wasn't really until the early 2000s that we really started to see a lot. I Honestly, one of my favorite films of all time, Ginger Snaps. <laughs> Uh, surprise, I'm talking about Ginger Snaps again. Um, <laughs> no, we I, knew it would get there. <laughs> uh, that film, I feel like, was kind of the, whereas Carrie was the origin, Ginger Snaps was the resurgence of it, where it really brought it more to the forefront again and made young women's stories stand out a bit more again. Um, and it's really just been since in the what is that the past 20 years that yeah. we've been seeing more but even then I feel like even just in the past five years we're seeing so many more films come out that would fit into this subgenre that would not have been made if they had if they had pitched this idea 20 years ago they probably right if they were mm-hmm. made they would have been direct to video or something and no one would have watched them and it's interesting too because a lot of older uterus horror films are very like cult, I would say they're cult films. Um, whereas now they're definitely getting more into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I mean, even Jennifer's body is now it's becoming more mainstream, but back in the day it was very cult. Yeah. Like if, if you liked it, it was weird that you liked it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's really hard to say why that is. I feel like part of it is probably because we're, we're just seeing more diversity in terms of filmmakers is probably a big part of it. We're seeing a lot more, women who are writing and directing films than we would have seen even 20 years ago, which is kind of crazy to think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, and it's, it's happened so quickly Yeah, and there's still, you know, progress to be made. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's constant progress, but it's, it's definitely happening much more rapidly mm-hmm. to go from back in the seventies to maybe one or two films here and there to then in the two thousands, a handful of films. And then now in the past five years, there's been so many more films in the subgenre focusing on women's stories. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see, and I can't wait to see what more we get. But it's, it's really, aside from there becoming more voices in horror, it's really, I mean, maybe like, I'm sure an argument could be made that like a post 9-11 type thing could have an impact on it as well. Um, if I, I'm sure if I did more research on that, I'm sure I could come up with an argument. You find for it. something, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's always something somewhere. Yes. Uh, but it's, yeah, I think, you know, it's probably also accessibility because mm-hmm. we're getting more, obviously, streaming has become huge just even the past five years. There are so many more streaming services, not just Netflix, but like Shudder for more horror focused and stuff. And right. that more easily accessible way of getting these films that might not have seen the light of day otherwise, it probably has a hand in it as well. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. And you brought up Jennifer's body, which kind of made me think about one amazing movie. That's the first thing it made me think. (laughs) Um, Two, uh, I was just kind of thinking about how, you know, a film like Carrie was directed by a man. Jennifer's body is of course through a woman's lens. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts around, how, you know, the lens of uterus horror and its sister subgenres kind of relating to the monstrous feminine shift when it's a story written or directed by a man versus when it's written and directed by a woman and how we're kind of seeing that shift uh, sort of in contemporary films versus, uh, you know, what we were seeing back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I think if it's done well, I do believe that uterus horror 
is a is a story that can be told by men. Totally. Um, obviously, we've seen that with Carrie. And yeah. I mean, Stephen King's story was amazing. The screenplay is great. The the direction was great. Um, all the men involved, good job. Yeah. <laughs> you did you did good. Yes. yes. Uh, Emotionally intelligent. It yeah. is interesting when we get to like say gender snaps. It's directed by John Fawcett, but it was written by Karen Walton. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think and it's funny, I, I've had a conversation with her about the film, and I had a chance to interview her. She's amazing. Um, but it's interesting when I was talking to her about it, because she was very much saying she wasn't a huge horror fan before working on the film. And mm. she got a lot, actually got a lot of guidance from John Fawcett when she was writing the film. She took inspiration from other places, and obviously no one's going to understand, no one on that duo is going to understand the uterus horror part of it more than she would. <laughs> mm. But it's, it is interesting to see. I I do wonder with that film, if it would have gotten the attention it did, if it had also been a female director mm. and with Jennifer's body, it's honestly the, the marketing is what killed that one. Oh gosh. Yeah. We talk about that all the time and we get so angry about it, but yeah. <laughs> and it's, and I'm sure it's because if we, I'm sure if we looked at the marketing team for that and the producers and stuff, I'm sure it was a mostly male team that just didn't know how to handle a story like this and right. didn't know how to market a story like this because it wasn't one that was being told very much. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also came out at a time, too, when she was still doing those Transformers movies and she was yeah. labeled as the sex object. So they sold her as the sex object, yeah. even though that wasn't inherently the first thing in the film that's like propelling the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and it's, yeah. it's one of those things, too, where I feel like times are changing. So we are there are films coming out now written and directed by women that are that are definitely going to. Uh, be more respected I think is a good way to put it but there there's still challenge because when like I feel like with these women's stories even now they don't know how to market it yeah (laughs) they they be yeah and it makes it difficult and it's I think there's always going to be a struggle for stories that focus on women because even with something this is totally out of left field but even with something like birds of prey yeah oh yeah I think that's amazing a really good example yeah (laughs) Yeah. and it's and even the marketing for it, I don't think they did a bad job with the marketing, but because it is written, directed by women, it's all female cast, mostly female production team. It's automatically going to get dumped on. Like it, inherently that is what's going to happen. And we've seen it happen by, yeah. mm-hmm. by <laughs> people who I will not talk about. Yeah. Um, a certain group of people that we all know and dislike. But, and it's it's just interesting to see that. I think that there will always be that struggle. I mean, well, I don't want to say always. I want to be optimistic. That yeah. Right now. Currently. Right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Birds of Prey is a really good example, yeah. especially because, you know, even with um, the new Suicide Squad coming out, which I haven't seen yet, but I very much am excited to. I love James Gunn. I do think that there are a lot of things about Birds of Prey that shifted the DCEU. Mm-hmm. that people are giving credit to the new Suicide Squad doing. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like the nonlinear storytelling happened with Birds of Prey and yeah. also makes the most sense within Birds of Prey. And also, I believe that there's a director's cut that we have not seen because a lot of the feminist messaging, which by feminist messaging, I mean just like, written by a woman right (laughs) um you know that kind of thing in that direction was lost in the edit that we see now and a lot of the issues I have with Birds of Prey I still love it it's an amazing movie 
a lot of those issues are things that I'm kind of like, I wonder if those issues would be there if it wasn't edited a certain way for a certain group of people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it's definitely something interesting to think about. I think that you're right. Jennifer's body, really, the marketing is where that failed, even down to, um, you know, like what she's wearing on the cover of like the poster, yeah. that's something that she wears <laughs> in the film. You know, it's like the sexy schoolgirl thing, which by the way, I already have an issue with that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, she's wearing that instead of what she's wearing in the film, which is really girly and tight, but also generally quite modest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's definitely an interesting thing to think about um, when it comes to uh, teenage girl coming of age stories specifically. I'm also seeing a shift too in how just we as women are talking about our periods, talking about our reproductive health. Um, like I had mentioned before with the pad commercials, with the with the liquids, but also just like then we're talking about it more because it's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to shove a, a pad or a tampon up your, up your sleeve while you walk to the bathroom and high school kind of thing anymore. And like, it shouldn't be that and it should never be that. And I'm loving the shift of like talking about it with women in oppressed countries where they're not, you know, they're treated as second class citizens when they're menstruating and talking about it and in, in like, you know, working to liberate them in those ways and talking about it just here on the Western front um, where it's this is what our body does and we create life. And I'm sorry if you think that's gross, then you don't have to be near me. But this is what it's going to do. And I'm going to talk about it because I'm not ashamed of what my body can do. Yeah, it's funny. I I will say I am so guilty of doing the sleep thing. (laughs) It's okay. It's ingrained in my head. But I like it's one of those things. It makes sense. Yeah, it's it's, ingrained. I've been trying so hard. There are a lot of things that I've had to like the internalized misogyny that is so embedded in my brain. I have to get around. um, And that's one of them. And so that's why... uh, I, I even recently have been talking about my periods on Twitter because since my second COVID vaccine dose, I've had weird menstruation related symptoms mm-hmm. um, or yeah, side effects, I guess yeah. is a better word. Um, and it's something that's not talked about. Right. And oh yeah. It's not at all. And it's no one is looking into this, but I made the point where I, when I tweeted about it, I made the point of saying if, if I was a man and I was experiencing like erectile dysfunction as a result of getting <laughs> the second COVID dose, you know, there would be a million and one studies being done about it. Absolutely. But because it's people <laughs> who menstruate that are experiencing these things, no one really gives a shit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no, I saw that tweet and I was like, yep, I'm on board with this. <laughs> Let's keep talking about it. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely, it's something that I think it's really, it's, I mean, even as women, it's hard for us to get past that because yeah. it's so ingrained in us and it's like second nature. It's really hard to correct our way of thinking after years and years of this being shoved into our minds. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So it's, I think that that probably has a part to play in how women's stories in film are not, not just marketed, but like how they're accepted and how people look at them. I think that probably has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, with the, with the exception of these few films that we're going to talk about and some of the ones that you've written about, nobody really deals with menstruation in this way. Like it's kind of cast off as this quote unquote gross thing, or it's just not even acknowledged at all. So like watching something like ginger snaps where they're like getting in it and there's blood everywhere and it's just, it's real. Like that is refreshing, but to people who don't menstruate and AKA, you know, toxic men, 
it, it, it's scary because it's, and I'm wondering if it's because, and we can totally get into this of like, it's something that they can't do. Like they will never know what that truly feels like. They will never know either what it is to menstruate or to create life or to do any of that stuff. Like it's completely foreign to them that it is so scary. And I think that that definitely plays a part of it. I think it also is the fact that we as women have, have been forced to watch different kinds of media and see ourselves in them, even when they're not our stories being told. Right. Whereas men have never had to do that. Mm-hmm. They like, we've had to watch these coming of age stories, like stand by me and stuff like that for young men and try to be like, yes, this character is, I can see myself in this character. And so we have the ability to empathize with all this. Whereas men have, they've, always had their stories easily accessible and easily told. Right. So they, they don't have that, again, something that's ingrained in us. They don't have that ingrained in them. And I, I don't totally blame men for this. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're also not, if you're a man who's not going to put an effort in and you're just going to cast something off because of it, um, which is why I pretty much any, well, obviously not now because I'm married, but back in the day, <laughs> I any guy that I was considering dating, I would force to watch Ginger Snaps just to see their reaction. Just to know. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like you can learn a lot from from someone based on how they react to watching things that mm-hmm. focus on menstruation. Right. Yeah. yeah. And how yeah. they, if they can relate to the characters, even though it's, it's a woman getting her period for the first time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They kind of don't have a radar. Yeah, I do that with people with bridesmaids. Not horror, but like, I'm like, can you get on the board with these girls yeah. shitting in a sink? Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> real women doing right. real women things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> do you know that women shit? Is that right. the real question? We do get food poisoning. <laughs> yeah. I love um, rewatching Sex in the City and just seeing all of the things that have aged horribly. And um, I remember there was a scene where they were talking about like, like they were talking about farting and it was like this horrible, like <laughs> women don't do that. And I was like, are they joking? I don't think they are. And like, this is like the two thousands and like the biggest show on television about empowering women. And so many things about it just didn't. And it does make me think a lot about internalized misogyny yeah. in media. Um, and I think that this is a really interesting genre to explore um, when it comes to that. And also as far as like, it's sort of, related subgenres and tropes i think about like the mother matron trope and maternal horror and how you know that being closely linked to womb horror and uterus horror um kind of in the sense that like childbearing genitalia is deemed monstrous in the same way that you know the re- reproductive system is seen as like abhorrent and terrifying and intimidating um, what are your thoughts on how women, mothers, and the reproductive system are viewed through the lens of horror? And how are these portrayals of women interlinked throughout these genres? I think one thing that definitely interlinks them, especially, I will say this is more specific to the these kinds of stories that are, are told by men, even though they're women-based stories, the men who tell this, I, I feel like the one thing that connects them all is that they depict what our bodies naturally do as something absolutely horrifying and terrifying. And I mean, evil in some cases, Yeah. Um, which I mean, it's, it's not, these are normal things. Like we, we bleed, we, we can give birth, like whatever. <laughs> so it's, and it's interesting that in all of these 
kinds of films, a lot of them are showing this while also giving a commentary on why it's shown like this. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain it. Like with Jennifer's body, it's showing that like the f- female sex- sexuality, especially at a young age, not a young age, when you're a teenager, when you're coming into your sexuality, if you embrace that sexuality, you're seen as evil. And, and in Jennifer's body, it was definitely a commentary on that because it was written and directed by women. They're like, yes, this is like when you're in a cis white male Christian dominated society, it's, it's considered evil. Right. Um, but then there are other films. I mean, even, I mean, I love Carrie, but even Carrie in a way is it's saying like, oh yeah, every, like, they're not saying that every girl doesn't get a period, but in this specific situation, this one girl, it's, it's linked to something evil in her. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I see Carrie as an anti-hero, but yes, <laughs> I agree. I, I do too. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's interesting to see those, and in I'm trying to think of it like like with Rosemary's Baby, it's more of the pregnancy maternal side of things. It's her body is doing something that it would normally do, but they're making it something evil right. because the devil's involved. You know, and it's it's yeah. interesting to see how when men are telling the stories, it focuses more on that part of it and tries to. And I think it's because they don't understand. Yeah. And and so for them, it is very scary. <laughs> like They're like, that less, sounds horrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it sucks for us. Like, I, I hate the fact that I get periods and it's like, childbirth doesn't sound super fun to me either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not necessarily afraid of it because it's something normal for me. Whereas right. from their perspective, they're like, holy crap, what is happening? Yeah. I even heard about that too with like, um, just the way birth is portrayed on film of like, women screaming and crying and like yelling and like grabbing their husband's hands and being like, you did this to me when like, I've listened to like, I have never given birth myself, but like I've talked to other women and they're like, yeah, it hurts. But like, you know, I don't want to like kill somebody. I'm not going to like it. Like they over dramatize it on screen and they make it this horrible thing that it not actually is. Well, it does hurt, but like, you know. And it's funny. I I've never given birth, but I was, in the delivery room when my first nephew was born. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I don't know if my sister's going to want me to talk about this, but I'm going to. Um, but it was like, it was nothing like how they described it. Like there was one part that got a little bit dramatic, um, but that was also after she had been in labor for like over 24 hours. Right. Yeah. So, that's that's an exhaustion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but for the most part, it was just like, yeah, I'm in pain. This this really sucks. And then the time to push came and pushing happened, but there was no yelling. It wasn't dramatic. Right. And it's just it's so yeah. weird how again, it's it's men, men that are that are <laughs> making it seem way more dramatic. And I'm it's it comes back to I with horror, it's always fear of the unknown. Yeah. And if they that's a very unknown thing for them. Even if they witness it, they don't understand the mechanics involved or anything. Right. So it's interesting to see the the way it's different when it's a story being told by a man versus a woman because I feel like there is one side that's more just showing how horrifying it is and the other side is usually like using it as a metaphor for something else going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump right in then. So Carrie from 1976, directed by Brian De Palma, based on the novel by Stephen King and then costume design by Rosanna Norton. Um, so let's dive in first like what makes this a uterus horror film and then we can talk about all the nitty-gritty this one is probably the most obvious uterus horror film (laughs) as i said the classic it it opens with her getting her period for the first time 
Mm-hmm. Um, and more specifically, it really examines the, I mean, the fear that she experiences is very real because she was raised in this very religious household. Like she probably didn't even really understand. I, well, she didn't understand what was happening to her right. um, because her mom never told her about it. And back then I'm sure sex education was not at its best. <laughs> right. I mean, even for me, I, I virtually had zero sex education. In school. Same. So, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is wild to think. It is interesting to watch that and see how she gets her powers at the same time as she gets her first period. Or at least we assume, because that's the first time she seems surprised when she notices that she's able to move things. Um, And it's directly linked with her period. Because I've never read the book, but from the movie, I I think it's only like the movie only really lasts like a week. (laughs) So you can can assume that she's on her period during this entire time. So who knows if she had gone off her period, if she would still have her powers then, or if it was directly linked to that, or if it was just, this is like her coming of age thing where the moment she got it, it was like, okay, now you're a woman. So now you have these powers. But within the context of the film too, it's really interesting to see how she doesn't necessarily think there's anything wrong with herself, but those around her do, especially her mother, because of that very strict Christian upbringing, um, which is actually something that's, that I see quite a bit in uterus horror films, where it shows how being a woman, especially from a Christian point of view, it's because of the whole like Eve thing. It's it's mm-hmm. definitely has a connotation that just by being a woman, just by becoming an adult woman and getting your period, you're automatically filled with sin. Um, and so it's interesting to see that not only in this film, but something that reoccurs in later films as well. And unfortunately, it's in this case, it's one of the films where your own biology ultimately is your own demise, mm-hmm. which is, I feel like if it was written by a woman, it might not have ended quite that way. Um, but it is something that, again, comes up quite a bit in the subgenre where your own biology is working against you. Yeah. Which is very sad. Although as someone who who suffers from endometriosis. I get it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, also Carrie's a very isolated character and something that I love about the costume design is that it tells that story very well. Yeah. Um, You can, I would say that Carrie's costuming, especially in the beginning, it has very much impacted the sort of lonely teenage girl trope in and out of horror. I feel like she is sort of one of the more quintessential lonely shy high schoolers that have this sort of uprising i feel like you could see that very clearly because she's placed against all these characters that have very very different style to her you know her classmates are wearing bell bottoms and you know tight tees and that kind of thing and she's wearing lots of like grays and beige and sweaters and loose clothes and that kind of makes her costume arc a little more impactful um you can also see um in the structure of her outfit how it's so starkly different from the characters around her um like i think there's a scene with miss collins where you can kind of see how carrie's in like a gray sweater i think it's like a gray turtleneck and it's really Mm -hmm. loose and miss collins is in like a really sharp collar like a pink sharp collar and a kind of clean structured cable knit sweater um and just like really nice flat iron denim and everyone is very much clean and streamlined around her um, at the school specifically. Um, You know, and then we can see her and her mother have kind of polarized costumes and 
um, it's a really interesting costume arc. I'm curious um, what everyone's thoughts are on this arc and what stood out to you. Um, I always thought that Carrie was somebody, like you were saying, who just who wanted to disappear, mm-hmm. whereas she maybe didn't want to wear the less form-fitting clothing but was forced to by her mother so therefore the color palettes the textures that she's choosing they're more fluffy and they're you know the colors are more muted so when we see her in that silk dress at the end that white silk dress that she made that is so it's very stevie nicks in the way that it's cut with the the spaghetti straps and the underbust um seams and it's just and it's almost like a handkerchief dress like it Mm -hmm. That is like, again, like her coming of age or her coming into herself and like figuring out who she is. And then, you know, and then it's white. So when you get the blood at the end, mm-hmm. it, it is so like you could see it right on top of it and everything. And my only costume complaint is I want to pull that hat off of PJ Soul's head the entire movie. <laughs> I want that stupid hat. I just want to pull it off her head. It looks so bad. <laughs> Yeah, That's hilarious. True. That um, was an interesting choice for her. I wonder yeah. why they did that. <laughs> I mean, it, it made for annoying, which is good because that's what I guess that's effective. Is. Yeah, yeah. Pull it up, Red. Yeah, I I do feel like you know, as far as Carrie's prob dress, uh, I was reading something about how like if there is um, a significant time in the film dedicated to showcasing the making and the sourcing of an outfit. Uh, it's kind of a clue to look a little closer into that costume design and the intention behind it. Um, and you see that with this dress. It also has kind of a, it's, you know, it's shiny, it's reflective. Um, yeah. It's also very soft, um, very much of the era. Like a, you would see any popular girl in high school wearing that prom dress. Yeah. It also has kind of a pinky beige hue to it, which is very unlike the things that she's we've seen her in before. And, having this kind of super bright light tone to her dress, it almost kind of blends into her skin. And mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anything to that, but in my brain, it's kind of like, you know, she shed a lot of the baggage in her head in that moment. Yeah. Um, and that this is her kind of coming to, uh, I also find that it's um, because it kind of is, it's so simple, but it's very much in line with what the beauty standards of that time were and still are dresses like that are you know making a revival every 20 maybe even 10 years it just kind of makes me think about kind of conformity where she feels like she's within her power but she's kind of still being conformed and controlled a little bit yeah um, and that she doesn't have as much control as she thinks she does which i think is very much something that we see with teenage girls in horror films specifically um, it's kind of this notion of feeling like you're in control or needing to feel like you're in control when you right. don't really know a lot about yourself your body what's going on around you um or how to kind of change your circumstances and it also that dress makes kind of this stark difference when we see her um i think it's when she comes home from prom she has that fight with her mom uh and her mom is in they're in kind of very similar nightgowns uh very cult-like um and kind of seeing her make this um kind of statement with her prom dress and feeling like she is more, you know, she's feeling like herself in it or thinking that she's kind of come into herself, but then she kind of has to go back to this control, you know, even down to her prom dress being like obviously braless. And, you know, I know the mom makes a comment about that. And that was very much something of the seventies. It was also just a style 
of that time dresses like that. But I think that that also does say something about the character. And so when we see her in kind of a more gaudy cult-like nightgown (laughs) afterwards, it's kind of like the control that she thought that she had, she still doesn't. Yeah. And it makes her very vulnerable too. And, and, and she, you know, and like you were saying, so she's wearing this dress where she's kind of conforming herself. So she finally feels that she's been accepted because she's got asked to the prom by one of the popular boys who's wearing a, a quintessential suit of the seventies. Menswear of the seventies is fantastic. That powder yeah. blue ruffled tuxedo. Mm. <laughs> Fabulous. And, and because the, the fabric's so thin, because she's not wearing a bra, you know, girls didn't really – there's no such thing as Spanx at the time. She probably wasn't wearing tights because it was the 70s, just women's liberation. Women stopped wearing tights for a while. Um, it left her very vulnerable. It left her very open. So all of these things then that happened to her at the at the dance are that much more horrific because – it's the, you know, like you were saying, it's the color of her skin. So it's almost as if it's a part of her body, this dress. Mm-hmm. And she's so vulnerable. And then she goes home and then sits in the bathtub in, in the blood, which mm-hmm. is a, another like, you know, symbol of, of that. And then puts on, like you were saying, that nightgown, which it's this frilly, you know, nightgown and and now she has to cover herself back up put her armor back on because she tried to expose herself she tried to put herself out there and it didn't get her anywhere and now she's pissed (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I definitely see two sides of it where it's the one where she definitely in the beginning she has all the layers and as she feels more comfortable and comes into her own she definitely sheds those layers until the the finale (laughs) um but then it also seems kind of like uh related to the conforming aspect it seems like she is almost trying to be a chameleon in a way where she is trying to wear what she thinks will appease the person that she's trying to gain favor from so obviously when she's trying to gain favor from her mom she has all the layers and it's very um i mean i don't want to say dowdy but it's the word that's coming to mind um But very demure. That's a better word. There we go. (laughs) That's the word I was looking for. Um, And, but then by the end, because she's trying to be seen more by these popular kids and wants to be one of them, she is wearing a dress that they might wear. And it's also, this is going to sound very strange, but I almost wonder if they made the choice to have such a pale dress for when she's on stage and has the blood on her to almost mirror the look of a tampon. Oh, um, since it is the mm. whole film is related to her menstruation. I almost wonder if that was an intentional choice to, I mean, not, not literally make her look like a tampon, but, <laughs> but to have it connect yeah. to that since in the beginning yeah. they're throwing pads and tampons at her. And, and then by the end, it's kind of a, a mirror of what's happening there, but on a more grand scale. Yeah. I really like that analysis. I, I would, hear, yeah. I would, that makes a lot of sense too. It doesn't seem, I don't think it seems like a reach to say that that may be why they chose that. And I would really love if that was kind of the meaning behind that imagery. It's also kind of funny to be like, I am the tampon now. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, no, that's a great reading. Oh, Molly, you should be a costume designer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to dress myself. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to talk about her mom's costume too. Yes. Yeah, the, that like high collar 
Um, she reminds me, I mean, it obviously it came out, what's this, what's that later? The Wicker Man? Was that before or after? But she reminds me of those like Celtic cults. Wicker Man came out. Mm. Like, like what you would see in Wicker Man, where especially when she's at the end, when she's got her arms spread open and she's yelling at her and it's very mm-hmm. like angelic or ethereal in that way, but in a very dark way where it's almost yeah. like the wrath of God, the way that she's silhouetted and the way that her high collar is like stuck up, almost like a priest. I mean, priests would do wear high collars in the Catholic mm-hmm. church. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think other denominations have the, the black collar with the white. I think the Wicker Man was um, 1973, and so I, I oh, okay. definitely see that be yeah. kind of a trickled influence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I also think the kind of like culty kind of aspect of, you know, especially with the association with white. I think yeah. white, you know, beyond being sort of clearly associated with kind of like being virginal and pure and modest, it's also very, and all those things are heavily correlated with many cults, especially um, in the 70s portrayal of them in film. Uh, I also noticed, um, and maybe we can talk about this later when we talk about The Brood, but I feel like all of those culty, modest things about her nightgown remind me a lot of Nola's nightgown in The Brood, which we can definitely touch on later. the exact same thing. But that's something that kind of struck me as sort of a, I'm wondering if there were dual, if, if not being influenced by Carrie and like actually by the character of the mother and Carrie um what kind of the through lines between those costumes are but um yeah I find it it's very interesting it's very very much all of the values that her mother holds and torments her with in the film you can see in the costuming which um I think is really really brilliant yeah religious wear is interesting and I'm not talking like clerical wear like what priests and nuns would wear I'm talking about like practitioners of really um don't want to use the word culty but they kind of are but they're the more you know very devout sections of religion where um like your lifestyles right right like if you're following the bible or the torah or any of those like you see a lot of women in long denim skirts in like you know chunky comfortable practical shoes long sleeves turtlenecks these things that are very modest and don't show a lot of the shape and just this like unofficial uniform that devout Christians and and Jews kind of adapt to their wearing with their everyday life through their practice of religion. Yeah, you can definitely see that in film. And I think that oftentimes we will get something that's a little exaggerated. I feel like her, you know, the nightgown that her mother wears, while it's very, you know, it's not completely out of date in the 70s I think you could date that to be a 70s nightgown but it very much is timeless it feels kind of like it's holding up traditionalism a little bit um you could probably see that in the 40s you could probably see it in the 20s and maybe even the 10s you know (laughs) it's something that like she's very rigid and um also I believe it's a stark white it's very pungent white that yeah kind of makes her character feel very sharp and you can see that in her other costumes throughout the film too she feels very sharply costumed right whereas the white on carrie is more virginal it's more innocent this is very clinical yeah yeah but on on the mother it's very clinical it's very like it looks like it's made of a doctor's coat yes (laughs) yeah rigid and cotton right and it's it's funny that you bring up the the clinical doctor side of it too because i was thinking also that there's something um that almost 
sparks the idea of insanity with mm-hmm. it. Uh, and I feel like this is something that can apply to both films as well, where there's almost something that makes you feel like you could easily see the same outfit if the person was in a mental institution or like the, and the high neck and being covered kind of feels somewhat reminiscent of like a straight jacket or something. Right. Uh, so it, it is interesting to see the difference in whites between the two of them and how they are portrayed, because it definitely feels like there is the, the ritualistic cult aspect, but it also feels like it also denotes some kind of mental illness as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is kind of how her mother plays her to Carrie, you know, where it's like there's the religious, stay vulnerable, stay virginal, but then there's also she knows that there's something like quote unquote wrong with her daughter and she's trying to fix her daughter and trying to cure her of her ills. And so there's definitely two sides of that coin within the mother as well. Even the high neck, now that I'm thinking about it, kind of evokes like a like a surgery sort of right situation yeah could definitely be read a lot of different ways that I'm curious um I'm always curious how much influence the costume department had on these films especially ones that are like in the 70s and the 80s yeah um and especially in horror films I do think that this had a bigger budget than a lot of horror films at the time did yes and so you know unlike a film where like there is no costume department this one at least had one it did and it had a designer and that was it but then the brood didn't have a designer, which is kind of a missed opportunity because Cronenberg's sister is a costume designer. Um, and it only had wardrobe – it had a wardrobe mistress and an assistant wardrobe. So, And those yeah. were the only two in the department. So it was I interesting. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. 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 I saw that the – so I think it's the wardrobe mistress, Delphine White, on the brood – um, also did scanners and videodrome and in the mouth of madness. Um, and probably I would assume quite a few other things. I believe that she does do costume design, but generally is credited as a wardrobe mistress, which I honestly have not seen before. And yeah. I don't know what the pay rate for that is compared to yeah. a costume designer. Um, so like uterine horror, Molly, this is our big gripe that because costume departments are primarily women, if there's yeah. no budget, um, you just don't have one or you don't get the credit for it that you deserve. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I would have to imagine just by how the title sounds, since it has mistress in it, yes. I'm sure that just by having that title, probably not getting paid as much as a costume designer. Yeah. No. Where's the production mistress and like right. the, grip, yeah. the grip mistress. Right. Like, and the best mistress, not the best. Yeah. Right. <laughs> best mistress. Yeah. It's very, I don't love that (laughs) i'm very curious as to why just make um, it a wardrobe supervisor supervisor just put supervisor in the title it's (laughs) at least you know at least in you know the friday the 13th films it was like supervisor but you know not mistress even though they still didn't get paid as much as they should for actually just costume designing the film (laughs) um but yeah if do you guys have any other thoughts on Carrie or should we jump into the brood? I can, we could jump into the brood. Yeah. Cause we're yeah. kind of, we're, we're like, we're like sewing them together cause they were only a year apart. So yeah. Yeah. I, the brood is one of my favorite films and I think it kind of crosses a couple subgenres. It could be kind of, it kind of uh, plays the field amongst kind of all of the <laughs> subgenres that we've kind of talked about. Um, but it's David Cronenberg, who is, of course, amazing video drum scanners. All, all every film that is your favorite film, he probably did one of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and 
it's I would say the brood is probably more considered womb horror over um uterus horror because it's not necessarily coming of age is that sort of where how you view it molly yeah i definitely view it more as womb because this is already a woman who knows who she is and what she's doing and she Mm -hmm. i don't know how much we want to get into it yet but i will say one of the things that i love (laughs) about this film compared to other womb horror even is that normally these films show like really traumatic pregnancies and births and stuff like this. Um, and the woman is really uh, just another victim in, in it all. Whereas this one, it's a woman who is quite literally weaponizing her womb. Yeah. yeah. And I love that. I love that take yes. on it. It's so cool. So yeah. in the film, um, Nola, who's played by Samantha Egger, who I believe she's the one who's also in Demon Seed, but I could be entirely wrong. Um, so, but if I am right, then that woman loves a womb whore moment. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so she's, she's isolated in this cult-like experimental therapy called psychoplasmics, um, at this like remote institute and her anger, it's her anger herself that's being weaponized and, you know, she's been working through it in therapy and it's basically her anger birthing itself from this like exo womb and acting on her unconscious desires. And so there's like basically this whole class of childlike small clones who are clad in like these brightly colored 70s ski suits that I think about constantly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, they're so, <laughs> so good. good. Um, what a funny costume choice. Um, <laughs> but uh, they're like wrecking havoc and killing anything that causes her stress and stress. <laughs> and so it's basically like this idea that a woman can pertain these generative powers without a man. And that's what becomes the source of terror because it's all sourced from one woman's anger, which I love. And it's very, she's very controlled. Yes. And very methodical about Mm -hmm. how she weaponizes it. I was, so this is my first time watching it because you had said that you love this movie and that Mm -hmm. Molly was kind of on the fence about if it was uterine horror or not. So I was kind Mm -hmm. of like, all right, let me see where I sit on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely, I think it's definitely more womb than uterus horror, but I didn't know where it was going at first because it really just felt like men discrediting the mental health and awareness of women. And that's what it felt like in the beginning until you really find out that she's like weaponizing her womb in that way. But in, in the first like 30 to 45 minutes, it's, you're really only getting the husband and the doctor's kind of take on what is happening to this woman and you're never really hearing her speak about her experience you're seeing like small bits of therapy sessions but not the full picture which Mm -hmm. I thought was an interesting choice and wondering like if it was directed by a woman or written by a woman would it it wouldn't feel that same way where it's almost the man demonizing his wife's uh, you know mental state or you know mental illness and using that against her to get his child, which I thought was interesting. I think definitely since we, as women, we can watch this and we know that that we're siding with her in this for the most part, maybe not on everything, but I mean, we we see what these men are doing and we see how she's being perceived uh, because that's something that women are always experiencing. So it's interesting. I, I totally agree. I think that if it was 
if someone remade it today and if there, if there were women who were behind it, it would be a very different story. I mean, probably a lot of the same beats and, and still having her weaponizing her womb and probably still having men discredit her, but have it focus more on her point of view from the story. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because obviously in this film, it definitely is more from the point of view of the husband more than anything. Yeah. yeah. And again, while it's it's a great film and it, I I love the wife. I think she's amazing. Or <laughs> ex, isn't she? Ex-wife. Yeah. That's right. Because um, they're going through the divorce. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she's I, iconic. <laughs> I love her. I, I love what she's doing. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like borderline one of those like good for her kind of thing. It is a little good for her. <laughs> oh, for yeah. sure. So, but it, I would, I would be so curious. I actually, now that we're talking about it, I want someone. I want a woman to write and direct it and redo it and, and show oh us. Oh my God. Yeah. A film where. I volunteer. Still, I volunteer yeah, a studio. Because <laughs> I can see it where she's doing all the same things, but making her a more sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead yeah. of us having to be like, no, we see what's going on. We know we probably, yeah. we know from experience what she's probably experiencing, mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily what's being shown in the film. Yeah. yeah. No, she's definitely being villainized because even just that opening segment where, you know, he walks in on the, the therapy session in that big lecture hall and the guy is you know the doctor is screaming at this other man and calling him Michael but then saying oh you should have been named Michelle maybe you know you should have been a woman because or a little girl I hate that term little girl weakness is only for little girls and stuff like that and you know mm -hmm. all these things where it's yeah she's being villainized she's being gaslighted and discredited in that way mm -hmm. there's also something to be said about it, it kind of and it kind of leans into like the dysfunctional mother thing. Mm. Um, I wouldn't yeah. say it's like entirely a maternal horror film because I don't know, it, it's less about her being a mother, but I do feel like it very heavily leans into that, especially given that it's her womb or her exo womb, you know, right. it's kind of birthing. It's, it's all of her anger is coming from her womb or coming out of her womb. Uh, which is really interesting. But it's kind of this idea, um, I guess Barbara Creed kind of talks about it in The Monstrous Feminine, um, kind of like the disease of being female. And so femininity and motherhood and horror being framed as like something to be feared. And this kind of disease that, you know, in many films you can see like, ooh, it's passed down for generations, you know, crazy yes. women. And I think in many ways you could consider that maybe that's related to why this is happening to her and all of this anger and the power that she's been able to generate from herself. Um, but yeah, there's a lot about that, about how this is very much a good example of women just having powers coming from themselves, right. uh, just like in Carrie. And there is no male influence on that. And that's absolutely fucking terrifying. For the people around them. For the men around yeah, them. For, yeah. the, for the men around them. All the women are like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> you go, girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm mad at him, too. <laughs> well, we get the hint at the end, too, that the little girl now is potentially harnessing this anger almost in the same way. And we love that little... for her. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering yep. also if he's if it's like a tongue-in-cheek way that Cronenberg was maybe, you know, kind of talking about the ineptitude in which men or fathers or grandfathers feel this protectiveness over their daughters and to take yeah. care of them and think that they're doing the right job at taking care of them in ways that 
that they think is right, but actually isn't the correct way to take care Mm -hmm. of these children. Because if you're screaming at a man saying you should have been named Michelle because weakness is for little girls, you're obviously not emotionally intelligent enough to then correspond Mm -hmm. with your actual small child who is a woman or will will become a woman. So I'm wondering if it's these women who haven't been taken care of by – because she – because the mother even says like – no, no, my father didn't protect me. Like you didn't stand up for me. You didn't do all this stuff. So there's there's a little bit of that in there too, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. I think the only way I can justify, you know, any line about in this film specifically about, you know, oh, you're just being a little girl. You're being yeah. weak, you know, <laughs> is that kind of not at the end where you're like, actually, this little right. girl, <laughs> she's gonna, a little more powerful than you. I'd yeah, watch you fuck some shit up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, what strikes me the most about the brood story aside is the extremely impressive production design, in my yeah. opinion, and how cohesive it is with the costumes. It's a very stylish, intentional, yes. and sharp film, as many Cronenberg films are. Mm-hmm. Um, and the costumes kind of go relatively under the radar as just like fabulously styled 70s clothes. Yes. <laughs> um, but it kind of has these sneakily what I would assume are intentional color palettes, you know, that we mm-hmm. can get into. Um, but it all kind of leads up to this really fabulous, unique sci-fi-esque gown that we see Nola um, wearing towards the end, which is that kind of interesting white virginal soft uh, gown that's really similar to Carrie's mother's um, nightgown mm-hmm. that we love so much. But what's really cool about this nightgown specifically it's feels very otherworldly it has this interesting ruching on the sleeves um it's a looser fabric if i remember correctly it's not as stiff as like carrie's mom's like nightgown is but very much like the mother matron of this you know cult of her little anger you know clones (laughs) running around um but it's cool because it's a very soft look with these billowy sleeves and it kind of delicately pedals out. And then it reveals this like creepy, gory body horror exo-womb yeah. thing underneath. And that alone really contrasts with the dress itself. But also this costume contrasts with the kind of tight design of the rest of the film. And I think that's really cool. I think it's really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the costume mistress... Who I'd like to call just the costume designer. Just Delphine. <laughs> just, yes, Miss Miss Delphine. Miss Delphine, you did um, great. <laughs> she did great. It's very sophisticated. Yeah. I noticed, too, on um, the husband or the ex-husband, um, while it's so cold up in Canada and they're showing people very bundled, the kids are very bundled, um, they put him in, like, the, the flimsiest bomber jackets ever to make him this like very attractive <laughs> machismo like I only yeah. need like a denim jacket to go around in the snow Indiana Jones yeah okay, Elsa right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like and he's in these like really tight corduroy pants these like very attractive fabrics lots of plaid like what a 70s version of like a lumber sexual would be yes for lack of a better exactly. term <laughs> yeah Speaking of hot men, I would just like to give Oliver Reed a shout out. Thank you for being in this film. You're doing great. There is something about 1970s men's blowouts that is just so (laughs) lovely that I wish that they would come back. John Travolta and Carrie and now him in this movie. Just Mm -hmm. it's the fluffy. It's so nice. It's a good look. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you don't need all that gel and no, you don't need... No, yeah. Just no. give us the fluff. Yeah. <laughs> um, something I also noticed um, in this film is that there's a lot of red. Yes. Nola, where we see her in red. We also see her daughter wearing red. Um, and also the the killer clones, childlike clones. Yeah. We also see them in red. I kind of, you know, view this color as something that is sort of that cult-like tying together of all of this thread of anger. There's a lot of costume clues that give us that clue at the end of the child potentially having this same generative power. Um, the costume tells us a lot. I think we also see her daughter in a very similar, if not the same jacket that we see the clone children in. Yeah, the whole same snowsuit. And then at the end, all the pajamas are the same. They're just in different, like half of them have- Which is really creepy. Yeah, really soft yellow. And half of them have <laughs> yeah. like a soft blue. But it's that yeah. same felty pajama two set. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. for the most part, the like primary color palette yeah. is very much in line with the late 70s, but it's also a very easy one to- uh, manipulate to be like a very intentional colors, very intentionally placed, you know, a lot of yellow in the production design and that kind mm -hmm. of contrasted with like these primary ski suits and then the red that we saw a lot of people wearing and a lot of the surrounding like supporting characters are pretty much, I mean, they're dressed phenomenally, but they're dressed in like very sharp business, casual, like brown, like just a lot of yes. brown and beige. Brown, and they look cranberry. great. Yeah. Yeah. They're meant to look good, but fall more into the background. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah. it works. I mean, I think that every costume in this film, it's so tight and it's so, you know, every single character is very intentional and you can tell, you know, kind of what role each character plays to a degree through the costume, which is sort of how I view a really effective one. One of the things that I love about um, the ex-wife's costume at the end too with the white is that the way she does that reveal you talk about where she like, it's this beautiful flowy white and like, she looks so like soft and ethereal. And then she opens it up to reveal what's underneath. I feel like that does a really good job of showing the beauty and the, the horror of childbirth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Cause she like, she looks gorgeous, but then underneath there's like this gory mess going on. And it's, that's very much what childbirth is too. I mean, she, and I love that she's not in pain and in agony and screaming and everything. She's very calm while all this is happening. The little, like, very um, animalistic lick that happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's very, it kind of shows, even though it looks unnatural, even to us, because obviously it's not normal for an exo-womb thing. Right. Um, right. But it's still, it feels natural when you're watching it. It right. feels like this is how her body is meant to work. Uh, and having that, I think there's also something really beautiful. And I love when films have these beautiful white costumes with blood and gore because it makes the gore part of it stand out so much more. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, that like that scene. I that's the only thing I think about when I think of that movie is just the yeah. picture of her holding it up. Yeah. Revealing what's underneath. It's so iconic and perfect. It it's is. very um, like butterfly-esque too, like coming oh, yeah. into yourself and she's got these, it, they're almost like wings that she lifts mm -hmm. up, like um, metamorphosis, that's the word I was looking for, where she's transformed now. Mm -hmm. Well, she's freed herself from yeah. you know, all this, this liberation from her anger and the things yeah. concerning her, which are mainly like men bugging her. Which... Right, and the, and the poor teacher who <laughs> she the, thinks is like teacher. sleeping with her husband. 
Yeah. She's like, I'm mad at him, but I'm also mad at you. Right. Um, everyone's going to feel this wrath. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's true. That freeness that she feels after she kills her doctor, that's when we get that reveal at the end. That like, oh, that exhale. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so well done. The story is told so well. And honestly, I can't think of many things creepier than those ski suits now. Oh and my I gosh. don't and know. Also, I like want a one. weird. <laughs> They're also like a weird, sticky material. Also, Molly, I've been following you on Twitter, and this is not a knock at your new chair, but it feels like that same material as your new chair. No, that I, <laughs> which I chair, love your new chair. I part of the reason why I got this chair is because I think it's hideous, and I love it because of that. Oh and gosh. that's actually it reminded me of like a snowshoe or one of those old yeah. like puffy jackets and stuff. That's exactly what it reminds me of. <laughs> Where it's yeah. you have the seams and it's it's pinched and, it, and you have the fluff yeah. inside and you just you can feel like if I look at it I can feel what it feels like on my hand. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the sound guy on this project was probably just like hearing ski suits yes. wrestle against each other the whole time. It's just like on ah. to this day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And how fitting. And now I've I've noticed this that in the late seventies, early eighties, we had a lot of little blonde children running around. But how fitting that she looks like the little girl from Poltergeist too. Oh yeah, this like yeah, tiny innocent little blonde with these little bangs. I thought she was when I first saw it. I did like too. Yeah, a split second. I was like, wait, who is that? No, that that's be. what I looked like at that age. Um, I. <laughs> I was terrifying. Aww. I looked like one of the kids from Village of the Damned. Like, I love it. Chil- yeah, Children of the Damned. One of the things that I absolutely love about the ski suit look is that now we look at it and it's so ominous and creepy and unsettling. But if we, if it wasn't in a horror context, like that would just be a normal outfit that the kids would have worn. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's so perfect because they took something that not only helps hide the identity of these creepy little things, um, because they're mostly covered. There's just like the little, yeah. <laughs> little tiny, yeah, <laughs> they, slot it, for the it, eyes. It allows them to hide in plain sight, but it also makes something that you would see every day. Like I'm sure that after people saw this movie, they probably would walk on the street and see little kids in the exact same outfit and be like, "Oh, I'm gonna right. walk across the street and not be near you." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah. a really one of my favorite things is when you put someone in a disarming costume. And then it's very alarming. What they yeah. do is very alarming. It makes the disarming costume no longer disarming. Yeah. Um, I think of like Pamela Voorhees. Oh, for yeah. example, mm-hmm. like a yeah. very disarming sweater. Yeah. Just like a mom dressed like a mother. You're like, she wouldn't hurt me. Nope. And then she's you're like, comfortable. oh, yeah, she's comfortable. <laughs> um, I also think of, this isn't necessarily like a villainous example, um, but I think of Danny for Midsummer in a very disarming outfit. Yeah. But going through a really traumatic experience, you know, something really comfortable. And yeah, there's something about those ski suits that does it really well, where it's like, yeah, that's probably the most fun outfit you could possibly think of at that time and also now. <laughs> but yeah, they are so creepy to me now after seeing this film. And I'm, I'm wondering whose idea that was. If it was like imagined, because I think Cronenberg also wrote it. And I'm yes. wondering if he was like, yes, they are wearing ski suits. That's creepy. Like if like some kid in a ski suit came up behind him and like pushed him over or something. Oh it freaked him out so much that he was like, I got to write that in. I um, really hope that's the case. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, but yeah, well, I I probably up those. in Canada too, 
like because it's cold for a bulk of the year and and all of the kids in the school have the same suit just in all these different colors so you can kind of like you're saying i'm like just get lost in the crowd of all these little creatures and critters where they can blend mm-hmm. in because all you're really seeing like it's just all these little heads <laughs> yeah it's all these little heads all these little heads and then the pajamas being all the same too just like oh my ski gosh. suits really creepy it's very unique too i honestly haven't seen many like horror yeah. villains in such a unique costume um that you know and of course this was pre like golden era of slashers right but you know in the following years we saw a lot of really similar looks for villains. It was yeah. just like, and and all of the looks were very creepy. It's like, yeah, this is a creepy person because they're wearing creepy clothes. Right. Yeah. Like we talked about in our gruesome foursome episode, a lot of these guys are just wearing like Pants. schlocky stuff yeah. that you can find like <laughs> jumpsuits and just yeah. dirty things. Like just sprinkle some dirt on it and there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's because they didn't have the budget for a costume department. They're like, make them Probably look not. creepy. Probably not. And call it call it good. <laughs> They're fun, but you know that was very right. much a defined era. And, I, and what I like about the Brood, and probably why I like a lot of seventies horror films, is that like at that point in time we didn't have like a defined slasher genre that we were like this is what that is supposed to look like. Right. So no one was there was a little more experimenting. Like in mm-hmm. the seventies, there wasn't as much of like we are going to follow this sort of copy of a film or structure of a film right and we want this kind of villain that was a little more you know it was popular in the 80s to sort of have a very specific kind of villain in the 70s we had a range and this showed that and that's what i love about it because it is creepy and they are killing a bunch of people and the kills are incredibly terrifying and great and creepy and tons of suspense but it's just like so not what you're expecting. Yeah, when I think of 70s horror, it's it's very all over the place because you have something like this, you have something like Carrie, then you have something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but then you have Suspiria. So it's very much like it isn't one size fits all, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. You're getting a lot of variety in the 70s. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I noticed that like with the production design, which was just really gorgeous and like well done frankly like I just think that it was I just wanted to live in it pretty much um (laughs) my only note is that I want to live in it I feel like in whatever way shape or form because I'm pretty sure they had a an actual art department like they did have people that were involved in like set dressing and construction and props and you know there was a whole team for that and I'm wondering how much they were able to kind of coordinate with wardrobe because it does feel like it all blends together, which is something that I really like to do in my own work. And um, something that I love to see is when you can really seamlessly blend production design wardrobe. I think about not necessarily yeah. horror, but um, Jacques Demi, like he has like wallpaper that's like the same as someone's shirt and things like that. This kind of reminded me of like the horror version of that. Um, it's a very visually stunning film that uh, regardless of the genre and the story is also just really beautiful to look at. And I think there was a lot of heart put into this project. Yeah. And whatever the wardrobe team did, they did it right. In <laughs> Yay! My- <laughs> yeah. Yay, Granada and Delphine. You guys did great. <laughs> we support you. We think you deserve more. <laughs> well, do you guys have any other thoughts on The Brood? I mean, other than 
people who haven't seen it should go watch it. Because I feel like of the two films we talked about, probably less people have seen The Brood than Carrie. Yeah. 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 And you'd probably, I think they're different films, but I think that Mm -hmm. you would definitely like The Brood if you liked Carrie, if you're a fan. Um, Particularly if you're a horror fan that hasn't seen The Brood. Um, Molly, are there any other films that you feel like we haven't mentioned that are like quintessential to uterus horror or womb horror um, that you feel like the horror fan or non-horror fan need to see? I'm trying to think of some good ones that maybe aren't the more well-known ones like Carrie and Jennifer's Body and Ginger Mm -hmm. Snaps. Obviously they're great. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. I mean, Ginger Snaps is like my favorite movie. (laughs) Yes. If I'm going to talk about something else, um, I mean, like I mentioned, even though at, at first glance it might not seem it, um, Sleepaway Camp, the first one, I definitely would put into the uterus horror uh, category, mm-hmm. um, especially because I even I feel like that is a good companion film to Carrie because I see both of those characters as antiheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, might be a little controversial, but <laughs> that's, yeah. that's my take on it. Um, they're both uh, victims of circumstance, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and some other good ones, more recent ones, like Thelma is a beautiful uterus horror film from, oh my God, Germany, I think. Now mm-hmm. I'm blanking. Ooh. I'm pretty sure it's German. Um, Blew My Mind, which I think is another German <laughs> one. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of German really great uterus horror films, uh, awesome. which is like, it's, it's a uterus horror, but it's also body horror. It's a girl who is slowly transforming into a mermaid, but oh. not in a good way. Right. And like, um, uh-oh, this isn't yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> like in a really traumatic, <laughs> oh my God, what's happening to me kind of way. Right. Um, Which probably would be what you would actually feel. And it wouldn't right. be like, oh, yeah. I'm a mermaid. It'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, like if anyone has ever seen the Disney Channel original movie, 13th Year, it's that, but but horror. Okay. And oh my God. <laughs> Um, and, uh, Raw, which is a French film, um, absolutely love that. That one is, focuses more on the coming of age side, not related to menstruation, but more coming into your sexuality. Mm -hmm. But there is Um, blood. There is, there is a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood. (laughs) The, she's a vegetarian, but then she starts eating meat, right? Or human meat. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I've heard about it and I really want to see it. Tasty. It's phenomenal. Okay. I am obsessed with it. Um, Really beautiful too. Like that's another one where like the the production design that they did and the lighting and stuff is, it's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And then for, for more womb horror, there is so much more of that out there. So, and and not necessarily all of it is good. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously like quintessential ones like The Brood and Rosemary's Baby are phenomenal films. Um, trying to think of more recent ones that I would say like, yes, this is great. I've never seen this, but I've heard good things about inside. Oh, okay. um, I haven't seen it I've either. I've never seen that one. Yeah. Uh, but I know that that has to do with pregnancy, but that might be a little traumatic for some people from what I understand. Cause it's like that I, French extremism oh, okay. type yeah, of film. For sure. Um, I haven't seen false positive I, yet. That's the new one on Hulu. Oh, I've heard good things about that. I have too. too. Yeah. Yes. That's one that I need to see. Yeah. It's there. I know that there are probably a lot of really good pre- like pregnancy womb ones out there, but the ones that I have seen, aside from the few that we've mentioned, I like I typically am not as big of a fan of them because they're usually made by men and yeah. they show it as like the super traumatic thing. And it's just like, Jesus, can we move on from that and do something <laughs> yeah. different, please? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so so if someone wants to make one, yes, <laughs> let's, let's write let's one. Do that. Yes. 
Um, I was going to say, you yeah. know, I feel like the anti-hero of um, this genre is very much something that I love to see. And it's kind of a through line. I feel like more often than not in uterus work, it's generally an anti-hero, which yeah. I love. And not to not to promote myself, but um, <laughs> uh, at Monstrous Femme, we are currently developing um, a pro-choice uterus horror, body horror set in the 70s. We're very excited. It's a team fronted by women. And um, we've been constantly thinking about <laughs> uterus horror, parasitic horror, uh, womb horror. And so... If anyone has any recommendations of, you know, maybe even lesser known short films, like send them our way. We'd love to see them. It's something that uh, I'm certainly constantly thinking about. And hopefully that will live up to everyone's standards. We're really excited to um, share that one, which is another reason I was like very ready to do this episode and do this topic. (laughs) I'm like, I have been thinking about this constantly. Someone (laughs) save me. Um, (laughs) So that'll be super fun. And I hope that we can kind of, you know, achieve that. Uh, the standards that all of these amazing films have set forth for us and keep progressing the women in horror narrative and yeah. you know through our lens because we are generally the ones experiencing the trauma so <laughs> would love to see more female voices um, being uplifted in the horror genre they're there we just need yeah. you know yeah people with uh, within powerful positions to showcase those Exactly. <laughs> and I will say, um, I, I have read the script and I'm very excited about it. Yay! <laughs> yeah. So, the Molly I won't, endorsement. I won't say anything else other than I'm excited about it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> thank you so much, Molly. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah. We've been ch- talking so much about having you on and we we're really excited we could finally snag you. Absolutely. Um, for a super fitting conversation. And we'll have you come yeah. back so we can just do a whole episode on ginger snaps and goth fashion. Yeah. <laughs> we will. Yes. yes. That that would definitely need to be a whole episode just for the fashion of that one. <laughs> we'll do it. I promise. Yeah. yeah they, thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. And yeah. Two great films and you're both great. And I'm excited that we had this conversation. We're excited too. Yeah. So cute and fun. <laughs> Well, thank you everyone for listening. This has been a blast. We're very glad that you enjoyed this episode. I guess I hope you enjoyed the episode. They will. Uh, they will. You'll enjoy it. You'll love it. You have no choice in the matter. Yeah, no choice in the matter. Thank you in advance for enjoying this episode. And thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at to die for podcast. That's D-Y-E. And on Twitter at die podcast. And next time you go into your closet, remember that your pieces could also be to die for. 